This is Straight Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're remembering 9-11, which uh, tomorrow will be a 20-year past event. Lots of memorials taking place, lots of introspection as a nation as taking place, and lots of memories of the people who lost their lives on that day and in the 20 years since. We want to continue discussing 9-11 for the rest of the hour, but we're going to switch gears a bit now and take a critical look at how the events of that day set into motion a decades-long war riddled with persecution, roundups, paranoia, and torture. My next guest notes that it's also what fed the fire that led to the normalization of the kinds of anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant rhetoric that Donald Trump used in his rise to power in 2016. Spencer Ackerman is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He's contributing editor for The Daily Beast and author of the newly released book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Spencer Ackerman, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks very much for having me. I'd like to start by uh, getting a sense of what you make of this moment 20 years after the 9-11 attacks and following President Biden's very recent decision to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan. So first, I'm a native New Yorker, and 9-11 is one of the darkest days in the history, not just of the United States, but of New York City. And that can't ever be something I erase from my mind. Um, you, One of your callers who mentioned that um, he was uh, in Brooklyn during the attacks and a friend colleague of his died on flight 93. He mentioned smelling the smell of not just um, the, you know, cloud of smoke that emerged from the towers with all of the office debris and all the other noxious stuff that was in there, but of human beings. And that's never going to be something I can forget. Um, in New York, remembering 9-11 hits different because it's not just a geopolitical event. It's an awful traumatic memory of watching your neighbors die, possibly for, for a lot of us, watching our family members die, our friends die, um, and thinking throughout that day that any one of us could be next. Um, I remember um, very vividly wondering throughout that day um, if the people I cared about uh, were going to be killed. And whatever else 9-11 is and represents, that is what it is always going to mean for me. Um, just the purest, most abject state of fear. But we have to use that to also remember how that's the fear of people who try to endure wars. That's the fear of people who are trying to endure and navigate through institutions of repression. And those latter two things are what resulted from 9-11 as deliberate choices of American political leadership pushed by one party, acquiesced to and supported by the other party, and with the full weight of the American security apparatus that was about to be unleashed from what 
you know, people can debate how strong these um, restrictions were before 9-11, but those restrictions were about to be violated um, very often and in violation, not just of the law, but the Constitution. The withdrawal from Afghanistan is long overdue. In a 20-year war that only strengthened the Taliban and, and only endangered um, the lives of Afghans, um, 160,000 of them who died in the war, according to a very analytically conservative tally by the Brown University Costs of War Project. But the best time to leave Afghanistan was always going to be yesterday. The second best time was always going to be today. And the worst time was always going to be tomorrow. President Biden deserves credit for following through on the commitment first made by uh, President Trump um, in his deal with the Taliban to uh, end the U.S. troop presence there. But at the same time, uh, what we saw was that uh, first he retains the right, as he said in multiple speeches around the withdrawal, to continue surveilling and bombing Afghanistan. And then while the United States correctly shouldered an obligation to take out of Afghanistan those Afghans who worked for it and who worked for Western interests, that is where American obligations to the Afghan people begin, and they're being treated as the way that they end. Um, the United States, if it is to truly show that it has learned from this era, owes material recompense to all of the Afghan people that were put in this crucible not just by the U.S. war, but also by the destabilization of Afghanistan that the United States contributed to in the 1980s. Uh, Americans, very often because of their media presentation, I think we in the press did a terrible job after 9-11 in the main. Um, important exceptions exist, but in the main, I think that that is a judgment that we have to accept. Um, rendered invisible the suffering of all of these people, and especially the contributions to that suffering in an enduring way that the United States contributed. Hmm. So t tell me about the, 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 the arc of the story uh, that you're telling in this book, uh, which, which I think really capsulizes um, the, the, the effect on us as Americans, uh, the effect on our politics, the effect on the way we relate to each other uh, that, that you say is part and parcel uh, of the reaction to 9-11. So first, it's important to note that it didn't have to be this way. Uh, the trauma of 9-11 was so real and politicians in many ways, to whitewash the impact of America's policy of being a global policeman, um, separated uh, the attacks of 9-11 from historical and material context that not only does Osama bin Laden explain, um, but treated addressing that explanation as tantamount to saying that my neighbors deserve to die the violent deaths that they suffered. And they never deserved that. Um, what happens on 9-11 is the result of this pretty much officially sponsored ahistoricity um, is that the United States opens a door to the ugliest parts of its history, uh, the most uh, violent, 
the most nativist, the most racist, gives all of those sentiments power and allows them uh, to drive the transformation of uh, American institutional mechanisms um, for security, all the surveillance, all of the immigration roundups, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the creation of a counterterrorism context for immigration, rather than seeing it as a mechanism to make more Americans, uh, the torture, the infiltration of Muslims' very places of worship, their community spacing. Here in New York City, CIA officials, including a serving CIA official, made the New York Police Department more like the CIA um, and returned it in many ways. I don't think it's um, very useful, nor is it historical, to talk about any of this um, just as you know, uh, a qualitative change, but rather um, the uh, return of a lot of historical forces um, that had shaped things like the NYPD um, before. And pretty soon the NYPD, like the FBI and like um, police departments and the Department of Homeland Security around the country were spying on Muslim neighborhoods, not on people it had any suspicion of committing any crime, but in order to generate not just fear within the communities, um, but to generate informants under pressure of imprisonment, prosecution, or deportation. All of these things persist and get normalized even when their consequences uh, become so horrific, like with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And in that inability for the United States to control the forces that it unleashed, um, and also the persistence of the wars um, where American elites of both parties, the leaderships of both parties, um, and the security apparatus continue to be um, custodians of these wars rather than, um, in the main, make efforts at ending them and ending um, the operations associated with the war on terror that aren't the hot wars, um, and replace them instead with things like drone strikes um, across, the, across the world. There is a faction that ever since 9-11, that nativist faction that has been primed uh, for this civilizationally understood violence that grows increasingly frustrated by the fact that the wars have gone so terribly that its critique becomes essentially that uh, the elites are keeping us from winning, that they plunge us into futile wars rather than do the things necessary uh, to protect us from things like the so-called creeping Sharia or the refugees from these wars that they see as no different from uh, the violent entities like ISIS that they're fleeing. Hmm. And someone like Donald Trump, who New Yorkers know intimately, um, is both a charlatan, a con man, and a demagogue who throughout his career has benefited through manipulating uh, perception, manipulating, I guess we should just say reality, um, to accrue wealth and power for himself at the expense of non-white New Yorkers, he has an explanation for this frustration that so many on the right are feeling that is a direct outgrowth of 9-11 that shows how the dominance politics of 9-11 can be played even against those who unleashed it. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, we're going to take another quick break and we come back. We are going to continue this conversation with uh, Spencer Ackerman about his new book about the way in which 9-11 has changed us and our politics. Uh, We're also going to get to more of your calls. John on the east side, Vincent Royal Oak, Layla in Detroit, Anika in Oak Park. We'll hear from you next if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today. On 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Spencer Ackerman. Uh, He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, contributing editor for The Daily Beast, and author of a new book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Uh, We're talking this hour, of course, about the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, which uh, is officially tomorrow. Uh, We're talking about that day. The memories that all of us have of that day uh, and the 20 years since and the things that we may have learned or that have happened to us uh, as a people uh, over those two decades. We want to hear from you as well about your memories, about the lessons you may have drawn over the last uh, 20 years. 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to include you that way. Let's go to Layla in Detroit. Layla, what's on your mind? Yeah. Uh, hi. Uh, hi. Am I on? Yes. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, I just have a, a humble request, uh, and I'll try and make it quick. As we remember and we commemorate the horrific events on September 11th and the trauma and the courage and everything. I just, I just want us to remember that this was one time in 20 years. And in the past 20 years, this kind of violence has been multiplied thousandfold overseas. Mm. Um, a lot of it caused by us. We were attacked once. We responded with the full force of our military, which was our right. But there was one congresswoman who voted against, and she understood that violence begets violence, not peace. And the people who are responding right now in Afghanistan, people in Iraq, people in Iran, they've been living with this kind of violence multiplied many-fold for the last 20 years. Hmm. And they're people, too. Yeah. Layla, I really appreciate uh, you calling and making that point, uh, Spencer Ackerman, that, that point does seem to go hand in hand with some of what you're writing about, which is the way in which this changed us as Americans. One of the things that I think it, it did was make us 
more insular and more inured to the idea that the suffering that we experienced on 9-11 is something that's far more common for people in other parts of the globe and that our response to all of this uh, caused a lot of pain and anguish uh, for people who really didn't have much to do uh, with what happened. 9-11 was an airstrike experienced in all of its horror um, on Americans. We can't even count how many airstrikes the United States responded to 9-11 with. Airstrikes that, while you know, ostensibly aimed at militants and certainly um, lethal to them, um, terrified so many million innocent people around the world for so long, and it's not stopping. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Layla, thanks very much for the call uh, and uh, the comments. Let's go to Vince in Royal hey, Oak. Vince, welcome yes. to the show. Yeah. Hi. Uh, Hi. So I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and, um, you know, as David Turnley said, heard the second crash, and I thought it was an, ex- an accident on the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway. But, um, you know, I was at the new school where David actually taught. I used to walk by his office. Hmm. Um, but, so, you know, the, the, the thing about the odor, of course, is, you know, certainly palpable. I'd never forget that. But, you know, we always talk about the actual event. But, you know, I was at the promenade. Eight hours later, paper was still falling down mm-hmm. from the sky. And... You know, the thing that kind of creeped me out was, you know, listening to NPR. Uh, first thing Congress did was pass a law to protect the airlines from a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And then after that was, you know, what I call the fear factor, and that is, uh, you know, yellow and orange. So a threat of terror, a real threat of terror. And... So, um, you know, my reflection on the last 20 years is that that um, that whole kind of, I would call a propaganda campaign, quite honestly, to incite that fear. I mean, I was, my daughter lives in Escanaba, and I was there after, at Christmas. People were all freaked out, and I said, you think terrorists are going to come to Escanaba to bomb this place? Mm-hmm. But... And yeah, Vince, I, I I really appreciate the call and those those insights. I mean, I think uh, you know that reaction that we had is is an important dimension of how we've changed as well. Spencer Ackerman, you write that this war on terror gave rise to the security state, for instance, uh, the Patriot Act and other surveillance and privacy issues that we deal with now. Uh, they are part of that paranoia, the the, the paranoid response, I guess, that that we had at the time. That's right. And it it doesn't so much invent this thing um, after 9-11. A lot of these structures, um, particularly institutionally, um, are the result of Cold War anti-communism. And those patterns are allowed to recur after 9-11 under veil of uh, patriotic vengeance. Um, Things that uh, the NSA started doing, the National Security Agency after 9-11, the bulk surveillance of all Americans' call records, uh, the bulk collection of their um, overseas, particularly internet communications data, 
Um, that was very clearly illegal and unconstitutional. Um, and the NSA suffered no significant reprisal uh, for doing that. Congress would eventually immunize, um, as your caller alleged, uh, as your caller referenced um, in a different context, immunize the telephone companies for participating um, in this mass violation of their customers' privacy. Um, so the 9-11 era doesn't so much invent these things as give urgency um, to unleashing uh, the security state from the already porous uh, boundaries of law and constitutional behavior that had constrained it at least somewhat before 9-11. Again, uh, Vince, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Uh, let's quickly go to Anika and Oak Park. Anika, I've got just about two minutes left. Go ahead. Are you there, Anika? I think you've got to turn your radio down. You there, Anika? Behavior. Okay, we're going to go to someone else here. Uh, Nika, you got to turn your phone. Down. You got to turn your radio down there in order to hear us. Uh, let's go to John on the east side. John, quickly. Thanks for taking my call. So uh, I was uh, working uh, long hours trying to wrap up the concrete season out at Metro Airport when it happened, and uh, this was long before we had a lot of communications. But uh, you know, working long hours, people start a lot of rumors and hearing, oh, a plane hit the Trade Center, and yeah, sure. But it soon became very apparent there. Uh, the airport changed for the rest of the day. It was either crazy busy landing planes or so quiet you could hear uh, EMS from way far away. And uh, <clears throat> I want to say that the reaction to my coworkers, who many were Latino and actually had homes and in Mexico, when I said, oh, <clears throat> our president probably had something to do with this, they looked at me like I was a traitor. Mm. And um, I think the outtake or the takeaway for this is that um, as long as we continue to exploit human beings, we are not going to have peace. Mm. Uh, John, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, we're going to run out of time. Uh, Spencer Ackerman, uh, go ahead and respond. No, I think that's um, obviously, you know, 9-11 was not an inside job. Not, not, not. Um, but your caller's point about how the perpetuation of exploitation, mm -hmm. um, particularly by the United States, is going to ensure that the United States does not yield peace. We've seen that for 20 years in the most uh, horrific and direct ways that lesson can be imparted upon us. Perhaps it's time to try something different and end that exploitation. Yeah. Okay. Spencer Ackerman, author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when we're going to talk about the new NFL season and all the storylines surrounding the league and, of course, our woeful local team, the Detroit Lions. We'll also talk with author David Cutler about his new book, Survival of the City, a look at how cities are changing in the face of existential threats to the pandemic has only 
Accelerated. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.